A recent Gallup poll was given, and you can go look this up for yourself, about how many people believed in a personal, actual devil. The statistic was actually shocking, and there were some different results, but it's becoming more and more prominent for people to deny the fact that there is a personal devil. As a matter of fact, if you do some research on it, you'll even find that many seminaries today who are liberal meaning they do not take God's word as authoritative, will believe that there is no such thing as a personal devil. They will say that he is uh, considered to be an influence or some type of bad or evil. However, when your authority is not, and hear me carefully, not man's mind, when it's not an institution's doctrine, or the common conception or ideas of people in the world. But when your authority is in the Word of God, and this is what is truth and right and wrong, the Word of God presents the fact that you and I face a person, a a being, who was created by God. He is not God's equal. As a matter of fact, he's nowhere even close to God. However, he has an agenda to defeat you. And as time played out, and we're going to see this without getting into some things that we don't know, we do know that this created being was created in time by God and apparently wanted to receive worship. And in his attempt to take worship from God, he was cast down from his position where he was apparently some type of guardian over God's throne room. And God cast him down, and in his ploy for deception, he pulled, according to God's word now, not my opinion, God's word, he pulled one-third of the angelic host with him in the fall. This is where you and I today battle in the heavenly realms. So Satan, who is the the chief, if you want to say that, rebeller, and then one-third of the angelic host with him, are organized and structured in rank. This is where demons and evil spirits and so forth come from, from that one-third that fell with him, try to thwart God's plan on this earth. Now, when Paul says that you and I do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers over the darkness of this world, what he's saying is there's a spiritual realm which you and I cannot see. Your physical eyes cannot see that. However, evil exists, and it is real. And the Word of God tells us that the evil that is behind mankind and the world system to control and dominate and to destroy, you know, Jesus said that Satan comes to do what? Three major things. To kill, steal, and destroy. Those are his three Three primary things that he wants to do in life. And he is a master at it, by the way. And he tries to do that to squash God's people. So you and I have to know him and know his schemes and how he works in order to understand when things happen in our life. Now let me make you feel a little bit better this morning. Not completely, but a little. But the purpose of this series is to be positive, okay? But you cannot know these things unless you know truth. So Help, let me help you here, because sometimes I hear people, this one lady back in the country, she'd say, Preacher, the devil's after me. 
And she'd go on to tell me all these lists of things. And I told her, I said, well, I'm not trying to be mean here. I'm trying to help you theologically. But I doubt that the devil is after you. Okay? Because the devil can only be in one place at one time. He is not omnipresent like God the Father or Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit. He is only in one place at one time. He does not have all knowledge. He's had plenty of time to study mankind. But he can only be one place. Now, let me just give you my little side take on this. The enemy knows that his time is short, and he knows he has to have a person to sit on a throne called the Antichrist. If you've ever studied God's Word, you know that in the end time, there will be a man who receives worship, he'll be empowered by Satan, and he will be the Antichrist. In my opinion, I believe that Satan, since he doesn't know when, is always preparing a man. You can go all the way back through history and you can start searching all of the major evil leaders in the world, get on down to our modern time where you and I are, and we can talk about Hitler. We can talk about other people like that. People would sometimes say they were devil-possessed or demon-possessed. I would not doubt that. But he always has a man. And so he is localized in one place. He is focusing in on one key leader that he can take that man and somehow indwell that man and make him think that he is a, a world ruler and that he will be worshipped one day. And if you don't think that that happens, then you have not looked at powerful world leaders. Now, the rest of his demon horde, by the way, you can read this. It's fascinating. The Word of God, the book of Jude and the book of Second Peter talks about the angels who are bound in chains in a place today called Tartarus because they kept not their first estate. In other words, something happened between those evil angels and it was so severe that God bound them until the great white throne judgment. My whole point in sharing God's word and this truth about angels and spirit beings is to let you know there is a realm that you can't see. And you and I don't know. And this is where we are dependent upon God who is spirit and who does know that there is a real enemy that we are in a battle against. Now, one of the things that Paul says is we are not to be ignorant of his strategies. How does he operate? Now, this is what you need to know today, okay? We're going to show you what you need to know. And then at the very end of the message, how you can combat him and how you can understand when spiritual warfare happens in your life. So the text this morning is Ephesians 6.10. This is a springboard. And then I'm going to bounce back to Genesis 3. Paul writes, Finally be strong in the Lord and against the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes. We could call this the game plan. The strategies of the devil. What are his strategies? Well, let me just say, spiritual warfare, I've talked about this before, is the ongoing conflict against mankind with its enemies, the world, the flesh, and the demonic forces that fight against us. Spiritual warfare began with the fall of God's created spirit being, Satan, and his followers, and it's waged against mankind. But there are four areas that Satan attempts to defeat. We need to know this, by the way. 
He goes after four major areas. Number one, the individual. If he can destroy you as an individual, he can impact everybody in your circle of influence. As a matter of fact, if our enemy can distract you and can get you either where people don't want to be around you or you don't want to be around other people, and he can defeat you in isolation, he can destroy you. And the next thing he wants to destroy is the family. Now, if you don't think that spiritual forces are on the move today trying to destroy what we call the nuclear family, one man, one woman, raising children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, then our head has been in the sand because he wants to destroy. Divorce rates, 50% across the board. doesn't matter if you're a believer or an unbeliever. This is what the statistics are saying. Nowadays, people don't even get married. Are you listening to how our culture has evolved? People say, why should we even get married? We will cohabitate. And this has been going on for several years, but it's reaching a climax now. People just move in together. There's no sacred bond between a man and a woman. He's done a great job. But our enemy wants to divide and conquer the family. This is why it's so hard in marriage for men and women to get along. Sometimes we think it's the personality of the wife or the personality of the husband, and that could be true. I'm not trying to discount that. What I'm trying to say is there are forces behind us to separate and split a family, and if you don't understand that, you'll be fighting against flesh and blood, not principalities and powers and rulers in the darkness of the world who are working in the lives of people. The third thing he wants to do is destroy the church. If you read the New Testament epistles, you'll understand that Paul says that our enemy wants to do one major thing in a local church. Do you know what that is? He wants to divide us. Because God cannot work in disunity. God has to work in unity. And the one thing that the enemy wants to do is he wants to Uh, raise up one particular personality or one group or one clique and cause a big stir and a mix between them. If you read Philippians chapter 2, Paul, in the middle of God's inspired word, tells that church, go after these two women and tell them to get along and agree. Because if you don't do that, the enemy will get in your church and he will divide it. He wants to destroy that by causing disunity. And then finally, he wants to destroy society. So four major areas the enemy wants to work and he wants to control, and he does this quite effectively. Now when you think about Satan controlling society, something happened, and we're going to go back in just a minute in the Garden of Eden. But as I told you before, there's no one text that says this. This is called theology. You take the Word of God, you put it together, you formulate an answer, And when you don't have answers, you admit it. But there has to be something that's going on. But something went kind of like this. God had already created spirit beings. Don't ask. We don't really know when. I understand answers in Genesis says on day one. But let me just be blunt here. Nobody really knows that. Okay? Nobody knows that for sure. So there's some estimation on, you know, how how long was Satan created? We don't know. Okay, just drop it right there. We don't know. But somehow or another, when these spirit beings were created, God made the heavens and the earth, and then he created man in his image. Now hear me carefully. 
When God created angels, he didn't create them like he did mankind, where a man and a woman come together and we have family. Angels are not family. They do not have aunts and uncles, cousins and brothers and sisters. They are individual personalities that were created by God the Creator by spoken word. They can't relate like us. They are not the family of God. They are not, they are not in the sense of mankind. But after God created man, jealousy overcame Satan. Totally overcame him because he did not want man to be the, the central climax of God's creation. He wanted to be that. And you better hear me this morning. He hated Adam and Eve so bad that he went after them. Somewhere there was an exchange. God allowed him to do that. God allowed Satan to go down and tempt the man and the woman to violate his word. And when the enemy was allowed to do that, somewhere in the heavens, this is how the conversation went. I'm just filling in the gap here. I bet you I can make him fall. And God says, well, obviously he was created free just like you were. Well, what's going to happen if I make him fall? Do I become ruler of this world? Can you all not hear what's going on here? And so God allows Satan a leash, and he goes down in the garden, and instead of going right to Adam, what did he do? He went right to the woman. And if he could get them to disobey God, then dominion and rulership would somehow, in some way, transfer to him. And if you don't think that happened, or you don't believe that, then you don't understand when you read God's Word, when Jesus and Paul the Apostle and other people refer to Satan as the God of this world, the little g. Somehow or another, something transpired there, and he was allowed power, authority. There's a difference between power and authority, by the way. He was allowed power and authority over the heavens and the earth, until Christ came. Let me read a couple of these passages to you. Paul writes in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, in their case, unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. He has blinded them. Do you know what happens when a person's blind? They can't see. You say, well, that's, that's revelatory. You're, that's smart. No, listen to me. They can't see. I was trying to share the gospel with a man this past week who was blind. And I want you to hear me. God's given me an opportunity to witness to a lot of people. This man had a very rough life, very hard, and started talking to me about one of his children. And I thought, you know what? God's opening a door because that's a soft spot in his heart. I started talking to him about Jesus, and I want you to listen to me. The guy couldn't hear a word I was saying. I was trying to explain to him forgiveness. I was trying to explain to him that Jesus loved him. He could not hear me. And so as I began to let him talk, I just started praying for him. God, this is spiritual warfare. His eyes are blind. You're going to have to open his eyes, Lord. I shared the gospel with him a couple of times. He, he never could see it. His eyes were blinded by the God of this age. Paul says in Ephesians 2, in which we once walked following the course of the world, notice this carefully, following the prince 
of the power of the air, that is, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. All of these movements today that are against God, against God's word, against God's people, against truth, and I don't want to get off on all of them. We've got enough here in America to take up at least two or three hours. All of these movements that are empowered and energized and just seem like they're steamrolling over everything, people sometimes wonder, how do they get the resources and the energy and the organization and the structure? How do they get that, all this to make this move? Are you looking at the text? They are energized by the prince of the power of the air who now works in the children of disobedience. He's at work. Jesus says before he went to the cross, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Right before he went to the cross. He was doing spiritual battle in a realm that you and I don't know anything about except what is in God's word. You see, here's kind of what happened. The first Adam had what? He had failure and defeat and sin entered the world. Jesus is referred to by Paul in, in Romans chapter 5 as the what? The second Adam. He took upon himself flesh and blood, not to redeem angels, but to redeem mankind. And when he went to the cross, the thought probably was by the enemy that if I can kill him and just go ahead and get rid of him, then I'll destroy him and it'll all be taken care of. But you see, something was happening in the plan of God that Satan didn't know about. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know the mind of God. And so Jesus said, I must go to the cross. I must go. And when he went and he took Adam's place and he died in the place of man to pay the penalty for all sin by which man was held in bondage under, he died on the cross and he defeated the enemy. Are y'all tracking with me? I, I know this is a little heavy. But you need to hear this stuff. And Jesus said now. He could see it in his mind's eye. He was going to die and he was going to defeat Satan. You should write this verse down in your mind. Colossians 2.13 He spoiled the principalities and the powers when he died on the cross. There was a spiritual battle that took place when Jesus died that you and I can't see. And he defeated them. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He's coming after me. He thinks he's going to defeat me. And can't you just see this taking place? That's why I love Chronicles of Narnia. When Aslan goes to the stone tablet. Man, C.S. Lewis knew exactly how to portray this. When Aslan goes up and dies for the young boy who sinned and was was entreated by the witch. And he went up there and they took this big lion and pulled his hair and gouged him and the witch just stabbed Aslan. And when Aslan died, she thought she had won the war. But what she didn't realize was her death stab defeated her. And this is exactly what happened in spiritual places. Now, with this in mind, let's turn in our mind's eye to Genesis chapter 3 and learn some schemes of our enemy. What are some schemes? Well, we'll talk about those in just a minute. Genesis chapter 3, 
verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, and neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave some to her husband, who was standing right there beside her, watching her be deceived. Can I read that in? And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. God was walking in the garden. Man was made in the image of God. When God walks in a garden, what is he doing? Did they actually see Jesus in the garden in a pre-incarnate state? The Lord God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. God among all the trees. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you hiding? Why are you hiding from me? Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Now, never before this was man afraid. Did he hide? Was there shame? I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now notice what happens here is the first counseling session. Blame shifting. The man said, the woman, notice this carefully, not just the woman, but the woman you gave me. (laughs) Notice how good we are at this. God, it's her fault, but I want to tell you something, ultimately it's your fault. Because if you had never given her to me, this would have never happened. By the way, your children are masters at this. Did you know that? They are master blame shifters. And unless you use God's wisdom and wisdom, you, you don't know how to get that out of their heart or at least expose it to them. You'll never get rid of it. But the woman you gave To be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Now notice this, the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. I mean, at least she owned it, right? The The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now let me stop here for a minute because 
We always go back to Sunday school and make this some silly little something. Satan is a spirit being. He does not have flesh and he does not have bones. Are you hearing me? He can't have a body. The only thing that a spirit can do is enter into a body of something that can be used. Satan is only said to have possessed one person in Scripture. Who was that? Who was it? Judas Iscariot. Satan entered him. He was right there in the middle of the upper room when Jesus was betrayed. Satan entered him. And this spirit being, if you go back to verse 1, chose the most charming and cunning creature of all the creatures God had made, and he came into it, and he began to talk to the woman. And God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. In other words, you're going to be humbled because you were used in this way. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now something went on here. People call this the proto-evangelium. That's a great big word. means the first gospel or the first promise. Because never before have you seen the phrase, the seed of woman. Seed comes from man. Egg comes from woman. But here God changes this idea and says the seed of woman is now going to crush your head. You will nip his heel, but he will crush your head. Do you all remember when I waxed eloquent for a long time last week and I read that passage in Romans where Paul said, pretty soon God is going to crush Satan under your feet? You remember that? To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing and pain. You shall bring forth children. Listen to this. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. I want you to look at what the fall did. And I don't want to get into this because this is not my point, but it brought immediate hostility. The man blames the woman, ultimately blames God. And now after the curse, what does the woman want to do? She wants to, I'm just telling you what God's Word says, she wants to dominate the man. You know, women are much smarter than men are. Now, don't get off on this. I understand men have sides of their brain that are smarter on some technical things. And one professor got fired from a major university by saying that men were better at math than women. Did you all know that? It's not true in every case, but in general, but... Listen to me, a woman's mind works 24 hours a day and never quits. All these neurons, and we call them spaghetti, firing all the time. Men try to get into a square, they just try to sit there and go, oh, and a woman can't ever do that. They wear themselves out thinking all the time, connecting this and that, and, you know, and men are like, what, what is she? But sometimes women try to use their wit to overpower their husband. Because in many ways they are... They are three steps ahead of us, and we're, we don't know that. Guys, I'm letting you in on a little secret this morning. She's not quite as dumb as she lets on to be sometimes. Okay, but here's what I'm saying. The woman's desire would be now to dominate her husband, but look at what the text says. He shall rule over you. Now, I never saw this, 
in the way that I saw it. I was born in the 70s, raised in good old America. I saw a little bit of grandpa, you know, telling grandma what to do and what have you. I never really saw this until I traveled to the Middle East. And that's when I realized, especially in Islamic territory, what it means for a man to rule over a woman. Never had I ever seen that. Wow. Ladies, you don't know how good you have it here in America. You will desire to rule over him, but he will dominate you. And by the way, just read throughout all of history until our recent women liberation movements back in the 50s and 60s that spawned all the way up until that time, there was absolute male domination. And I know atrocities happened to women, but listen to me, it came from the fall. And to you, Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. You're going to have to, instead of enjoy the food that I give, you're going to have to work for it. Work was never a curse, but toil in work is. Because thorns and thistles and briars and rocks, and anybody that has a garden knows what this is. And when our garden doesn't work, we go to Aldi. But there was no Aldi back then. And you had to work for it. Let me, let me just say this. If California and all the drought that happens out in the West would ever sweep over America and God wouldn't send rain here for seven years, a majority of the population in this country would die. Because about 10% of the population raises your food. Die of starvation. They wouldn't know what to do. So be thankful for a farmer, by the way, the next time they hold up traffic on the road. Because they're helping to feed you. But you're going to have to work for it. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and the dust you shall return. So from this passage we get four stages of Satan's spiritual warfare. What are they? Number one, Satan attempted and he attempts to distort our natural desires. Now hear, hear me carefully. Every human being, and you've got to understand this, we all have a desire for food, we all get hungry. We all have a desire for sex, for intimacy. You want me just to go ahead and say it? That is a desire not of the devil. That is a desire that God put inside of you. Okay, let me just stop with those two. So it's good to be hungry. It's good to have a desire for food. If you don't, you're sick. It's good to have a desire for intimacy because that's natural in you. The problem comes when these things are uh, taken and twisted. And I'm going to talk about this in the next step, but just notice this. Satan wants desire to be the master of you instead of you being the master of your desire. So let's take the one for example. Let's say that you have passions inside of you that you want to work out. And you know that God's plan for your life is to wait until marriage to fulfill this one flesh union between a man and a woman. That is God's plan for health, 
satisfaction and the best. But when you and I go and try to allow this to keep working in our head and we decide to go and do other things, whether it be premarital, whether it be some type of immorality, whether it be pornography or whatever, this is when desire turns into lust and it turns into sin. Desire itself is not sin. Longing for something itself is not sin. It's when the action is carried out. Now, you have to hear me on this. I know that's a little graphic, but everybody here can relate to it. We all have desire, but when the desire becomes the master and you don't master your desire, that's when the enemy gets a foothold in your life. Whether it be food, whether it be sex, listen to me, whether it be money, Money itself is not evil, but Paul says the love of it is. Because you can't serve two masters. You have to serve one or the other. And when you're in love with money, you're not in love with God. I don't care what anybody says. This is what God says. The desire to have is not bad. But when that desire masters you and it's all you can think about, listen to me, you are in bondage to that. It's dominated you. The second tool he uses or stage that he uses is deception. He uses deception to distort our thinking. So he takes a natural desire that is inside of man. He studied it. He knows it. He takes that desire and now he goes to the person and he tries to deceive them, to use deception to show them, you know what? You're not reaching the maximum fulfillment and pleasure out of this desire. So let me help you a little bit. I mean, God had already put Adam and Eve in the garden, right? What did he tell them to do? You can eat of every tree except this one. What did the enemy do? Went right straight to the one. Did God tell you you can't eat from that all? He knows that when you eat of it, you'll be like him. He's holding out on you. You think God's good. Well, if he were so good, why didn't he tell you you could eat from that one? He uses deception. Tony Evans writes that Satan uses the good old foot-in-the-door tactic. He tempts believers to allow him to inch in little by little through deception. Do you all know what the foot-in-the-door tactic is? By the Y'all remember salesmen used to go around and sell vacuum cleaners and all kinds of stuff. And people would say, you know, if they can peck on your door and you oh, if they could just get their foot right inside the door... They would train these salesmen to start talking about weather, about your children, about anything, until they found some kind of common connection. And then they would spend 15 minutes talking about the common connection, and then they would end up selling you a vacuum cleaner you don't need. The foot in the door. So he, he takes a desire. And what do, what do people say today, by the way? If you ever do counseling with people or you ever listen to people, they'll say this, oh, just the way I'm made. I mean, what, what could be wrong with me going out and having a good time because it's just the way I made I have a desire for it, God. I mean, I'm made this way, and so I fulfill that desire. I'm satisfied, and, you know, there it goes. And then we say, are you really satisfied? Why do you want to do it again? By the way, when you did that, what happened? And what about the other person? So who are you satisfying? You? Them? I mean, total deception. 
He knows whatever controls our minds controls our actions. And that's why the mind is where the battle is at. Third, he uses the stage of disobedience to direct us away from fellowship with God. This is exactly what he did to Eve. If you will eat, then you will be like him and you will know. So just do it. Just do it. And then you'll see. Desire, notice this train. Desire, something that's natural, is played upon to deceive us and then to get us to carry the action out. And this is when sin occurs. Tony Evans writes, Victorious Christian living occurs when the Holy Spirit's presence is free to manage through our spirit our feelings, emotions, and desires. That really made me start thinking this week about praying, saying, Lord, invade my feelings, my emotions, and my desires. And if I go to glorify myself, help me see that. And help me be obedient to you. And then the fourth stage that the enemy uses is death, by the way. Death and it's fear to deceive us. Hebrews chapter 2 talks about Christ came in a body for the purpose of destroying him who had the power of death, that is the devil, by which he kept people in bondage all their lifetime. You see, when Eve and Adam ate of the apple, or what an apple, forgive me, the fruit, and they fell in sin, then what happened? Something terrible happened. God said, in the day you eat, you will surely die. And they died spiritually, and then they died physically. And so somehow or another in this great exchange, there was the concept that, you know what? He did use death and fear to manipulate people. By the way, y'all know why this is called the Adam's apple? Theologians say when it, when it got to there, it got stuck. Yeah. Of course, that's a... That is just a joke now. So here is the trail. Desires, deception, disobedience, and death. Now, by the way, sometimes we look at things like this and we think, oh, we're smarter than our enemy. We know exactly how to defeat him. I was reminded this week when somebody showed me. There was an older lady. She went into the bank and she wanted to withdraw $10. So there was a young girl behind the teller and This older lady fumbled around in her purse and she finally got to her card. She pulled her bank card out because they wouldn't send her checks anymore and she went up to the teller. After she got up there and got her card out, she said, I'd like to withdraw $10. And the young teller behind the counter said, well, ma'am, bank policy is if you withdraw anything less than $100, you need to use the ATM. And the older lady turned her head and looked at the ATM and she said, well, I don't know how to use that. I've never used it before. I just need $10. And she said, ma'am, there's a long line behind you. Go to the ATM and you can ask for assistance. Get out your phone and figure out how to do it. So the older lady said, well, I have another idea. I'd like to just withdraw everything I have in my savings. So the young girl grabbed her bank card and typed her name in and found out the woman had $500,000 in the bank. And she said, well, ma'am, you have $500,000 in the bank. 
And she began to think, I better treat this woman a little different now. She's, she saved up a pile of money. You have 500. We don't have $500,000 in the bank. And the old lady said, wait a minute, I can't withdraw 10 and I can't withdraw 500,000. She said, well, how much can I withdraw? And the young teller said, well, the bank policy says that you can withdraw $3,000 a day. That's the daily limit of cash we can give you. She said, well, that's fine. I'll take $3,000 in cash. So the young teller counted out $3,000, put it in an envelope, wrote a little smiley face on it, handed it back to the lady. She said, ma'am, I hope you have a blessed day. The woman grabbed her envelope and she pulled it out. She counted out $10 and she put it in her purse and she said, I'd like to deposit $2,990. By the way, there's two morals to that story. One is be nice to older people because they've been around a lot longer than you have. But the second is that's kind of like our enemy. You know, we think he's dumb, but he's been around for quite a while and he knows how to war. Now, when we think about his agenda and, and strategy, we learned last week, and thank you, Christian, for remembering that, oh, even though it wasn't my quote, we are not fighting for victory, we're fighting from it. But what I want to do is share something with you that Tony Evans actually shared in his book on spiritual warfare. And I couldn't do it as good as he could, so I'm going to have to just read what he wrote, okay? This is his quote. Our enemy is defeated... And you and I don't have to live in fear or bondage to him. So he, he writes, if hell is happening in your life, it's because hell has been, been given permission to do so. Listen to what he writes. Hell, it's okay for you to rule my mind. It's okay for you to rule my emotions. It's okay for you to rule my will or my body. I give you permission to tell me that I'm not really a man even though I was born a man. I give you permission to tell me I'm not really a woman even though I was born a woman. I give you permission to tell me that I want drugs, I need drugs, and I can't stop using drugs. I give you permission to tell me I need a drink, can't live without a drink, and can't go to sleep without a drink. I give you permission to tell me that I should wake up depressed, stay depressed, go to bed depressed. I give you permission to tell me that I can't control my anger, can't control my spending, can't control my desires, or that I'm not loved, or that I will never amount to anything of significance. And he says this, every time the believer lives a defeated life, it's just like you are going, hell, go ahead and attack me. And he he writes this, believer, you need to know that is not how God has changed the spiritual warfare. God has changed it to where we don't have to live like that. Now, by the way, next week's message, you may or may have never heard a message like this. I've learned so many things by reading this, even myself. But next week, I'm in Romans chapter 6 to talk to you about how to win the victory in your members. How do you win the victory to stop sin in your flesh? There is one principle that if you get it, Paul gets, I've read Romans 6, I don't know how many times, had I don't know how many courses on the book of Romans. Never saw this. Man, was it eye-opening. So, read Romans 6, but the point is, the victory has been won. Evans goes on to write, Satan operates by consent and cooperation. 
He deceives us and we consent to sin and then guess what? We cooperate with it. He does not have the authority to use his power when you are living underneath the legitimate authority as a Christian. Therefore, he seeks to lure you out from underneath God's authority and rule in your life because he knows that you are secure and underneath him. Just like a fisherman. You know, if you took a hook and you put it on the most expensive reel you wanted and you casted a bare hook out there, you could fish all day long, probably never catch a thing. Do you know that? Fishermen know better. What do they do? They study the pH of the water. They study the kind of fish they're after. They target the fish. They get the right color. They get the right line. And then they put this nice bait on there. And they do something really slick. They hide the hook. And they throw it out there and they jig, jig, shake it a certain way because they've learned that certain fish can't stand certain motions and movements. And even if the fish is not hungry, just because it can't stand for that being around, it has to have it. Boom! And that's exactly what happens in our life. He baits the hook and we fall for it. We have to consent. His desire in spiritual warfare is to cause us to question and doubt the goodness of God. God, if you were good, why did this happen to me? Now, I want to help you here for a minute. You live this life and bad things are going to happen. God will turn it for good because victory is the Lord. We, we sang about that. But the next time that you think about, God, why did this bad thing happen to me? I want you to stop for a minute and say, God, why has all this good happened to me? Why has all this good happened to me? You know, I'm speaking for myself here. Why have you allowed me to have health? Why have you allowed me to have two eyes? Okay, if you don't have health, you have other things. There are things that health is not everything. But you can thank God for his goodness. And by the way, this is another lesson down the road on how to defeat the enemy. He cannot stand thanksgiving to God. As a matter of fact, Paul tells you that the greatest way to win the spiritual warfare is to start praising. And this is why he talks about in Ephesians that we are to talk in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs because during that day and time, that was how people could communicate things that they were familiar with and they knew and they were able to share that and it would ward off the enemy. There's power in that. But that is what he tries to do. Oftentimes the death in our relationships, hopes, careers, families, and in other areas will lead to depressing thoughts and discouragement. Depression, discouragement are Satan's aim because he seems to make our life void of the abundance Jesus has promised us. As a result, we often question God and his promises. Not only that, but when our lives feel miserable, we are frequently too dejected to give God any glory or to tell others about him. You know, you don't tell people about God unless you feel like it, do you? And if the enemy can keep you defeated and depressed and down and pooch-lipped and only thinking about yourself, I want you to listen to me. He has dominated you. Don't you dare let him do that because God is good. And we will see the victory. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. 
For your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He tries that. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, I just want to read this to you with no comment, okay? Just, just at the end, because this is the practical, so what? What do I do with all this? I mean, it's good. What, what do I do with it? Okay, good. I'm glad you asked that. This is the parallel to Genesis 3. Think about this idea now. The desire, right? We have a desire. And then we have deception. And then we have doubtfulness. Or, and then you have death. Listen to what James writes. What causes in your human heart and in the human life fights among you? What? Is it not this that your interpretively read here now, your passions which are normal, that have now been manipulated, and you have been deceived, are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now notice this. You do not have because you do not ask. So notice what happens. Internal war. Avoidance of God. You don't pray when you're in this kind of battle. Last thing you want to do. You don't have because you don't. You've done forgot God's out of the equation. You don't even pray to Him anymore. You don't even talk to Him. You don't even read His Word. Living it all on your own. Where do wars and things... Here's where they come from. You don't have because you don't ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Listen to what James writes, not me. You people who have went and slept with another lover. You've left the God of heaven, and you've went went and crawled in with the God of the world. Listen, I'm telling you what he's writing here. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it's no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns and jealously over the human spirit that has been made to dwell in each one of us. He cares about your spirit. But he gives more grace, thank the Lord. You don't have to live like that. Can't you hear James? He was a pastor. He gives more grace. When you feel this lust and all these things running up in you and wanting desire, he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So what's the answer? Number one, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Stop trying to do it your way. And submit means what? To give up. Lord, I give it up. Submit yourselves to God. Number two, resist the devil. What does he try to do? Take your warped desire, lead it to deception, and move right on down the chain Resist that. You, now, now we know how he operates. Resist it. Resist the devil and what will happen? 
This is a promise from God, by the way. He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Draw near. Now, what are we to do? Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify you hearts. Your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. This is called repentance. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And after you repent, humble yourself before the Lord and He will exalt you. Wow. He will exalt you. Paul writes that we are to stand because the battle has already been won. And since Christian quoted this earlier, I'll just leave it in your mind. Remember what we studied last week about the battle in heavenly places was fought there, but it was also won there? So I want this to permeate your minds. When all these things happen, we are not fighting for victory. We are fighting from victory. He won the battle. If you're here this morning and you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, we want to offer you a chance to accept Him as your personal Savior. He died for your sins. And what do you have to do? You have to believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin to give you eternal life. And if you will believe that and accept it, God's Word says that to whoever believes, He will give eternal life. It's a free gift. It can never be earned. But for those of us who have that free gift in our life, we battle our way through life and our enemy knows us better than we know ourselves. But thanks be to God that the things that he tries to use in our life, we can have victory over. So next week, Romans chapter 6, what do you do when somebody makes you so angry? that you'd like to just wring their neck off? What do you do when somebody beats you out of money and it just absolutely dominates everything in your mind and life? What do you do when you feel like you're so addicted that you can't give it up? Well, next week we're going to shatter the chain with God's Word. One little word shall fail him. God wins. Father, thank you this morning for your word and for the truth of the spiritual battle. May Jesus be first in our life, in our church, and may we surrender, humble ourselves before you, knowing how desperate we are for your intervention and your strength and most importantly, your grace knowing that you resist the proud who think they can do it on their own, but you give grace to the humble who admit this is not our battle, it's yours. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.